0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team.
1: Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the FIC Focus podcast series brought to you by us, the fixed strategy research team here at Bloomberg. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me as always is colleague, Sam Geyer. Uh, before diving in, a little public service announcement. If you like what we're doing with FIC Focus, please do take a moment to follow, comment, and share, as that helps us keep bringing great content to you. And today, we are exceptionally pleased to have with us Armin Panosian. Armin is Managing Director, Head of Performing Credit, and the incoming co-CEO over at Oak Tree Capital Management. Armin, really great to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks Noel, thanks Sam. Indeed. So, Oak Tree is one of those touchstone companies for me. Uh, and I'm not going to say I'm a fanboy, but you know, it's it's a company that's sort of been with me pretty much for the entirety of my credit career which started in the late 90s and even as I transitioned to opportunistic stressed and distressed in the early and mid 2000s, it's a company that almost became a lore in Part of the lore of that era, so I guess maybe the best place to start is is sort of the founding, or perhaps more appropriately, the roots of the Oak Tree story. Sure,
2: absolutely. Um, You know, Oak Tree was founded in 1995, but its roots and its history go back far longer than that. Uh, You know, in the late uh, late 70s, Howard Marks, uh, while at Citibank, um, launched one of the world's first um, uh, high yield bond funds. Um, and so that was really the start of high yield. And, and Howard and therefore Oak Tree were really at the, at the start of high yield as well at the same time. Uh, in 1985, Howard uh, moved over to the Trust Company of the West, TCW, where he was joined by other partners, again, focusing on high yield bonds. Um, early in the life of high yield bonds, it was sort of an emerging asset class. Uh, previously considered to be uninvestable because the markets were really focused on government debt and focused on investment grade only. And high yield back then was called junk. Um, and it was because of was Nobody wanted to own it. Um, in 1988, they were joined by Bruce Karsh. Bruce Karsh um, was and still is the portfolio manager for our flagship distressed debt group in the family of funds that have been raised since, you know, the 1980s um, uh, in that strategy. Um, and it was really, um, you know, Bruce looked at the high-yield universe and found that when a junk bond was not performing well, there was sort of lookout below and prices would fall dozens and dozens of points. And there was really no buyer base for those bonds after there was, you know, any sort of hiccup in performance. And he went to Howard and said, "You know, we really should start a strategy around this, and let's let's make it institutional. Let's uh, this shouldn't be, um, you know, a couple a couple guys reading documents and and winging it. Uh, let's make it really institutional and go to the institutional client base that Howard enjoyed at TCW and and launched uh, what is one of the world's first institutional um, uh, distress debt funds um, back in back in 1988 and." That really, those two strategies, just high yield bonds and distressed debt were the core of Oak Tree's strategies when it was founded in 1995 by Howard Bruce and uh, the rest of their partners. You know, since then, uh, out of of those two strategies, organically, the firm has stepped out into a lot of other strategies, including senior loan management, uh, CLO management, structured credit. Uh, even real estate, even our real estate business was really an offshoot out of our distressed debt strategies because in the 90s, we were really looking at non performing loan pools uh, that were pretty prevalent because of the savings and loan crisis. So we really took an organic view as to what we do at Oak Tree, what's our strong suit, um, and focused on essentially below investment grade or unrated credit on a performing and non performing basis. Those are really the roots of Oak Tree. And, That's where we thought there was less efficiency, where skill and hard work could differentiate performance, and and that's what we've been doing ever since.
1: So, I mean, it's interesting, right, because part of the evolution of the distress space more broadly, certainly over the last decade or so, is you kind of had two pools, right, of that sort of early leading guard of the distress space. Some people sort of drew a circle around that business and said, listen, we're distressed. This is what we do. Others sort of drove that evolution or chose to evolve, Oak Tree being in that later camp, uh, I guess maybe, you know, you touched on it there uh, in terms of saying, hey, listen, we've got these core competencies. Why not do this? Was there anything else that sort of fed that evolution decision? Um, you know, it, I think Howard
2: and Bruce, um, they viewed that market as misunderstood, as mispriced. Um, and if you have the specialization both by industry and by product type or asset type, the combination would be quite strong and deliver a differentiated product to clients. Um, I think it was because of that inefficiency that they were attracted to distressed debt, um, and there just wasn't really much competition there. Um, and I think that um, you know Howard especially talks about the primacy of risk control as a fundamental tenant to our investment philosophy. Um, before distressed debt was a a thing and before it was an asset class, people were trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with it. Are you supposed to behave equity-like? Are you supposed to be debt-like? And I think Howard uh, was was quite um, focused and disciplined around it being a credit asset class. And therefore, risk control was the primary obligation that we had as credit managers, even in distressed debt, even when we were buying debt at 20 cents, 40 cents, 60 cents, risk control and avoidance of losses, avoidance of, of losers was the primary responsibility that we, we had. And, um, as a result of that, our batting average in our distress business is quite high. I mean, it, it's, uh, for, uh, I, I don't, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but for every loser, we have dozens and dozens of winners and we're not really looking to, you know, hit home runs. We're not looking to have uh, the types of equity returns that a venture capital or private equity firm would want to have, uh, because to do that you have to, you have to risk getting a zero as well on those investments. Zeros for us are not tolerated, and um, and we really pride ourselves on delivering a very attractive risk adjusted return through a cycle with risk under control across our asset classes, and even in distressed debt where most people or some people uh, have taken more of an equity like view, and and frankly. Over the last thirty years, have flamed out sometimes uh, because of because of that more risk uh, risk loving uh, view.
1: So maybe let's step back a little bit before we get into some maybe some of the specific asset classes that you have over on the performing side. Your incoming co CEO, as we mentioned, and that's slated for the early part of next year. I guess, you know, I'm always intrigued in terms of what allows people to succeed in different environments. You know, the, whether it's a founder mentality, that sort of thing. You know, for yourself personally, is there like a certain appetite for risk or maybe it's fastidiousness? Like what was the DNA that sort of allowed you to be successful at Oak Tree?
2: You know, that's probably a better question for Howard and Bruce than it is for me. But, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think that, so, so first of all, I joined Oak Tree in 2007, right before the financial crisis. Um, investing during the financial crisis, whether you like it or not, you know, you you get scraped and cut and you learn a lot. and And um, some people do get carried out um, as a result of that general market pressure, as well as their willingness to take risks that were probably not well thought out or well researched. Um, For me, you know, I think having gone through that cycle, having restructured a lot of different businesses in a lot of different industries, having worked across Oak Tree's platforms, even with our real estate group, for example, in buying assets, securities, companies during that period of time. Um, I had the fortunate opportunity to um, to learn a lot from Howard and Bruce and from the rest of my colleagues in the distressed debt group. But I also had uh, the fortunate opportunity to work across the platform. And I think that uh, as we emerged from the global financial crisis and as, as rates went to zero, um, the <laughs> desire to populate other parts of the firm with people from the distressed group became more front and center. And uh, myself and, and a couple others were asked to step out of the distress group to really grow other strategies that would benefit from that um, experience of having invested during the financial crisis. So initially, I moved over to the loan strategy, helped us get into CLO management, which eventually led to structured credit uh, investing. Uh, that eventually snowballed into multi-asset credit uh, investing. Uh, that really was an overlay across all of our performing credit areas. So I think having touched so much of the business, and after having uh, invested in what is the most, I would say, interesting and volatile uh, investment opportunity set of our time, of our lifetime, at least so far, um, I think Howard and Bruce, as they looked at their eventual succession, which they're not going anywhere. I mean, they love this stuff too much, so I, I don't think they're, I don't think they're heading out the door anytime soon. And in fact, I think the elevation of Bob O'Leary and myself as co CEOs will probably elongate, actually their involvement with Oak Tree, which is a, a, a welcome fact, I think. Um, but I, you know, I, but just given that uh, that range of responsibilities I have had and um, an oversight of a variety of different uh, investment strategies and having worked across the firm, distressed real estate and otherwise, it just was a natural fit um, as, as Howard and Bruce looked at uh, leadership to you know, ask somebody or or a or couple people who had that breadth and depth in experience. I'm not the only one that has that breadth and depth, so I don't really know uh, the specifics as to why I would be chosen and others wouldn't, but, I, but I'm fortunate to have um, a great set of colleagues, a great set of uh, portfolio managers across all of our strategies to work with as partners. Uh, and I feel very fortunate that at this point in time, especially with rates having risen the way they have and the volatility that I expect, and we expect at Oak Tree commensurate with that kind of rate rise. I think, um, I, again, I feel very fortunate to be taking the helm at a time where I think it's really Oak Tree's time to shine.
1: Yeah. So let's maybe get into that a little bit and maybe start with some of the specific markets that sort of constitute the performing side of the business. I mean, I guess it's probably hard to start anywhere other than private credit because it seems to be the thing that everybody wants to talk about. Uh, that said, the term is a little bit of a catch-all, right? I mean, and, and for Oak Tree, there's very different flavors of, of what private credit means. So, so maybe we can start there in terms of what are the different markets on the private side that Oak Tree is engaged in, and in terms of you know how do those markets break down, and then maybe why do we think each of these markets are so compelling? Great. Um, I think the way the clients
2: view private credit is certainly a very large opportunity set. Distressed debt or privately negotiated rescue loans, for example, which which we would um, uh, go after in the opportunistic credit context, that's considered private credit. Um, and then there's more sort of center of the fairway private credit, credit like lending to private equity sponsors, doing new LBOs. Um, that is also private credit. I would call that more corporate direct lending, whereas on the opportunistic credit side, and it's opportunistic private credit. But but all under the umbrella of um, of private credit broadly, uh, mezzanine lending uh, again mainly to LBO sponsors. That is something that we do as well. Um, and then in Europe, uh, we have uh, our roots in private credit in re- Europe really came out of a more opportunistic bent that we have uh, that we had there coming out of the financial crisis, where we found that the banks had meaningfully stepped away from the markets there, and so there was a need for private capital to fill that void, much like what we're seeing today. But that also occurred with with Basel III and and, and the regulatory framework um, coming out of the financial crisis in Europe. And so we launched what we call, call our European Dislocation Fund uh, coming out of the um, financial crisis, which morphed into European Capital Solutions. Mm-hmm. And that is more of a performing credit strategy, but with a root uh, very well or deeply based in um, in, in a more dislocated or opportunistic uh, mindset, um, and then we just coming out of the financial crisis, even in the U.S. and in other places around the world, um, we found that our skill set of deep underwriting, which is really rooted across all of Oak Tree strategies, but but for sure, uh, very specifically in opportunistic credit, you know that deep underwriting capability coupled with a disciplined approach to structuring was a winning combination to generate deals with an attractive risk-adjusted return, higher returning than what you would typically see in anything in credit, on a performing credit basis, and more structured because it was more inefficient, opaque, harder to understand, and less competitive. And so what as a result of that um, uh, uh, frequency of market participation on the private credit side in opportunistic credit areas during the financial crisis, we launched what we call strategic credit, which... Uh, was focused on non-sponsored direct lending just higher yielding more bespoke opportunities you know out of that strategy we started investing in life sciences companies uh, these were these are not venture lending loans they're more sort of uh, um, companies that are in the in the middle part of their life cycle which is not early stage and not you know the Pfizers of the world they're you know they have uh, assets that are generating revenues but then more assets that are actually burning cash because they're They're doing uh, um, R&D for FDA approvals and and clinical trials. But those types of inefficient areas are places where we chose to focus, where we, uh, through our uh, differentiated sourcing, differentiated structuring and underwriting, could generate returns that were in excess of what more traditional private credit managers were offering the market. Um, But now, as we fast forward to today, um, you know, we were with the... You know, having done so much in the hard parts of private credit, you know, opportunistic, non-sponsored, dislocation, etc., we are now finding an opportunity uh, to to generate attractive risk-adjusted returns in the center of the private credit or corporate direct lending market, and it's really because the banks are have stepped away because of regulatory reasons, because of losses from syndication. We think that you know, uh, depending on the the period you look at over the last twelve months. Several direct lenders actually stepped away from the market because they were worried about legacy portfolios and some of the issues that were creeping up in those portfolios, given the higher cost of borrowing and, and you know, the impact of COVID, the impact of inflation on these businesses. So there is um, the opportunity to lend into even a dislocated environment in the center of the private credit opportunity um, and uh, corporate direct lending now as a consequence of both higher rates and dislocation, what we're finding is that you could lend on a first lien basis to large businesses being bought by private equity firms at a cost of debt between 11 and 13%, again, on a first lien basis. That's um, the best risk-adjusted return I could think of currently in the market, um, and certainly much, much higher than it's been at any time in the last 10 years. Uh, so it's a great vintage to, to really lean into private credit, even in, even in Kind of the most uh, highly trafficked part of private credit which appears a, a bit dislocated at the moment
1: so so there a couple of things that maybe threads to pull on there maybe the first one is is because you alluded to a couple of times which is sort of the regulatory backdrop and i guess uh, you know given the the rapid growth of the private credit space and again it's sort of a, it's multi-tentacled so it's kind of hard to i mean it's a big umbrella right so but I guess, you know, there's rumbling certainly out of Europe about maybe it's not transparent enough or how do we sort of improve sort of the visibility uh, into that market. I guess, you know, from afar, it almost looks to me that the opacity is a feature of, of the marketplace, right? Not, not that dissimilar to the way leveraged loans have operated for eons where, you know, even transparency there is invite only, whether it's an intro links or something like that. So I guess maybe how do you think about the evolution of the marketplace on the cre- private credit side, whether we're talking direct lending, obviously you got more transparency in BDCs and that sort of thing. Uh, do you think the regulators sort of come after this space a little bit to say we need more from you guys, and if so, you know, does that impact the returns that you're able to generate there?
2: It's a great question, and I don't have a crystal ball from a regulatory standpoint. Um, if I did, I'd be on my private island and we'd be having this podcast from there. <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> um, so a couple of things on that. Prior to the financial crisis, private credit was about a $250 billion asset class. Today, it's approaching $1.5 trillion. The growth of the asset class and the, and the um, propensity of private equity firms to use it as a way to finance deals has made it more professional, more transparent than it was pre-GFC um, and, um, I would say more, um, syndicated as well, which as a result of that, as a result of the number of participants picking up because of this, of the, of the evolution of it, um, there are more eyes on private credit and making sure that it has the level of disclosure needed to, um, to be a safe instrument for institutional investors. I mean, you, you couldn't, grow that much without a massive institutional buy-in for private credit. Um, I think that the where there is opacity, it is made up or for, with um, closer relationships with the management teams, closer relationships with the private equity owners or other owners of these businesses. And so yes, you might not have uh, the same level of disclosures as an SEC filer would you today don't have that much off of that it is by appointment it is you only get access if you if you are a lender of record um, in those situations um but if you are a lender of record I don't feel that we have a disadvantage in our information in private credit situations versus public credit situations um, and in fact we might even have an advantage because of our closer relationship with the borrower and the private equity owner now, that doesn't mean regulators won't have a problem with the asset class because um, there are now uh, retail vehicles that are investing in private credit and promising certain levels of liquidity. We've seen this in the REIT space and we see it in the BDC space, these um, you know semi-liquid BDCs, um, uh, private BDCs. And so I think that there is ri- some risk that if the disclosures around those retail vehicles are found to be inadequate or the promises around liquidity that were made, if those are found to be um, overstated, then there could possibly be some regulatory oversight around those, I think, limited considerations. The reason I view it that way uh, in terms of a limited context is because I don't think private credit, with how diffuse it's become with the number of investment managers that that are in the space now, um, I don't think it's systemic risk. I I I think it's going to be more about sort of consumer protection being the theme around private credit um, uh, regulation, and not um, you know uh, preventing the next GFC. Uh, so that's that's my view.
1: On, on it. So so maybe a slightly different angle in terms of because obviously a lot of uh, you know a lot of the capital is coming from the institutional side. Uh, is there uh, any sort of Need from their standpoint, or are they asking for any kind of consistency, you know, across the different providers of private credit or, or direct lending, or is it mostly like, hey, listen, we know you guys know what you're doing, so here's the capital, and thank you very much.
2: I think it's more the latter. Um, what what they do is they say, I want to see your track record. How long have how long have you been in the business? How many people do you have who are sourcing and underwriting and structuring these loans? Uh, they kick the tires on your relationships with private equity firms, intermediaries, advisors. Um, so they do a lot of diligence to make sure that you are uh, you know, a real and sustainable player in the private credit markets. But once uh, you get to the point where you have withstood their underwriting process of your own investment process, <laughs> um, you, they then give you the capital and they love the asset class uh, because it is pretty low volatility, the assets, don't, the the underlying assets do not get marked to market or marked to model. They get marked to fundamental performance of the underlying businesses. So there there could certainly be markdowns, but it's more related to the fundamentals rather than market technicals or uh, or some more more psychological impact that the markets may be suffering from. That is not tied to the economy. So if you think about it from a, a pension fund's perspective, they could earn Uh, you know, in today's market, a double digit distribution on their private credit investment and have very low volatility on the performance that through a cycle could actually look quite attractive from a sharp ratio perspective vis-a-vis their board. And that's, I think, a key part of why you've seen that massive growth in private credit and the acceptance of it as a asset class that's on par with, you know, high yield bonds or or leveraged loans. They're all about 1.5 trillion now.
1: Yeah, they're all sort of right around that same size. So I guess that begs uh, one more question. And I know Sam's chomping at the bet to get in here. So I'm going to ask one more and then let him come in. But I guess sort of channeling your inner Goldilocks, is this, you know, is the degree of capital raised in this market too hot, too cold? Is it just right? And I guess, you know, kind of related to that, uh, given the size and sort of the expertise that Tree brings to the marketplace, you know, how do you see that that scale benefits you in terms of relative to that growth?
2: Great question. Um, the headlines that one has seen in the press would suggest that maybe there's too much capital being raised in private credit and it's becoming too competitive and maybe it's competing away the, the opportunity set. Um, and I think month to month, quarter to quarter, it can feel more competitive than not. However, if you take more of a longer-term view, a multi-year view, I think what you would find is that there's not enough private credit capital relative to private equity demand for private credit capital. You know, based on our numbers, globally, there's over $2 trillion of private equity capital looking for deals. Last I checked, private equity sponsors aren't known for returning undrawn capital. So that money's going to get spent. It might take two years, three years, but it's not going to take 10. And so if you think about that demand to deploy capital in private equity, and you juxtapose that with what's happening in the in the banking environment, what's happening with bank tolerance for lending or using their balance sheet to earn syndication fees, that's gone the opposite direction. So private equity firms are not consistently able to tap the banking markets like they used to be, like they used to. So now you have a demand, a growing demand for private credit to fund those private equity deals. And based on our numbers, there's only about 300 billion of debt of, of private credit dry powder. So there's a huge mismatch there and and certainly more growth is possible. Now, this particular year because the cost of borrowing has gone up so much and so fast, I think private equity firms are a bit shell shocked. They're just saying, you know, do, do the numbers work? I need to have a lower multiple uh, for the enterprise value if I'm going to buy this business. So M&A volumes are down this year. And so, you know, depending on the month, depending on the quarter, there may feel like a little bit more competition for, for, for direct lenders to win deals with private equity firms. Uh, and it's ebbed and flowed for sure over the last 12 months. Um, but I think it's still very attractive relative value even though it's tightened in the last 12 months, I still think it offers, uh, from a risk-adjusted return perspective, uh, one of the best investment opportunities in the market today. And I think that in the next year or two, as these as this dry powder gets invested, it's going to continue to look really good.
0: Armin, turning to, I guess more broadly, the leverage credit market as a whole, um, specifically for corporate fundamentals, I was just wanting to, to know your thoughts in terms of, like, how do you see this current higher interest rate environment impacting, you know, the current fundamentals of, of these specific companies in the market?
2: So, it's it's sort of a tale of two periods, and and unfortunately, right now we're at the, standing in the middle of those two periods. So, it, from from my perspective, now what's the what are the two periods? The the first period is the period up until uh, three, two, three months ago, which. I would characterize it in terms of fundamentals as a lot better than one would expect. If you look at late 2022, early 2023, you would find that uh, despite inflation, despite all the headlines, consumer savings were really strong. Um, Home prices, pretty stable. Um, The economy and unemployment pictures, pretty good. And if you looked at the June readout for inflation, you'd say, wow, also trending in the right direction is it possible that the Fed are magicians or, or Chairman Powell in particular is he a magician I mean it was it's all looking so good um, but that's all in the rear view in, from my perspective and it was a, and by the way the inflation readout a big part of that is really because oil prices came down to 75 bucks in, in June and they're you know then they went to hundred over the last few weeks and then back down to you know 80 to 85 is kind of the range they're in now so Energy is a big part of that inflation picture. But I also think that if you look historically and you look at the a period of rapid rate increases, it usually takes about 18 months from when the peak rate is hit to experience the stress or distress in the markets. You also have seen historically a, a 100% correlation with an inverted yield curve resulting in a recession. I don't understand why this time would be different. No one has given me a compelling argument to say this time is, is materially different. And I think that if we fast forward nine, 12 months from now, we'll say, of course, this was going to happen. Of course, bad things were going to happen. And what are those bad things? Those bad things are as a company has to borrow at 12% or more um, to do something strategic, to build a manufacturing plant, to, to uh, get FDA approval for, in cl- for a clinical trial. They're probably gonna think twice about it because the ROE isn't that attractive. With the rapid rate increases and with spread widening, essentially what the markets have, have dictated is that the pie of corporate credit is now more skewed in favor of credit investors rather than equity investors. And that's the first time that's happened in a very, very long time. Much of the last 13, 14 years has been an equity story. It's been easy access to capital, declining spreads, declining rates or low rates. Um, And so equity arbitraging your way to a great IRR, um, it it worked. It was a great strategy. But that strategy doesn't work anymore. So who will borrow at 12% uh, and be able to have an ROE? It's really those owners and private equity firms and other investors that actually do have a secret sauce with respect to a particular sector. They know how to execute in it even though maybe the valuation multiples are down or declining from here because of high rates, they, are, they have the ability to grow enterprise value. Those are the places where you will see differentiation on the equity side. Um, and as we unfold kind of what's about to happen, I'm concerned that where we do see strength, in, where we have seen strength this year in the economy and the markets, I think it's in a fragile state of equilibrium let's take home home prices for example you could borrow at on a 30-year mortgage two years ago less than two years ago at three and a quarter percent today you can't borrow at less than seven percent why then would home prices stay flat which they are they're flat to up actually this year and it's really because nobody is selling their houses nobody wants to um, take on a new mortgage at seven percent because they can't afford it so as a result of that, you've seen a massive reduction in existing home sales this year, like down 60, 70% in terms of volumes. Um, and so that feels like a low float stock. Now, why do I use that? And it's not, by the way, this is, not, um, this is something that others have said too. So it's not uh, unique to me, but it, it feels that um, there just isn't enough liquidity in homes to such that if it were tested, with a sudden increase in selling demand, that home prices would actually be able to stay constant. And what is it going to take for there to be a sudden increase, even a marginal increase in selling demand? It would be these adjustable rate mortgages. If you actually look at the, the adjustable rate mortgages, you know somewhere between 8 and 20% of the U.S. market, depending on home price, has used an adjustable rate mortgage to finance itself. And some of those are fixed for a period of time. Some of them will start floating pretty soon. But if you do see high rates for another 12 months or 24 months, you will see the impact on home prices as a result of those high rates. For now, people are saying, I'm going to keep my house as long as I can. I'm not going to sell it because I can't afford the next one. And they're dreading the day for that adjustable rate mortgage when it becomes adjustable. And if they have to sell, and all of a sudden, even if 10% of owners of adjustable rate mortgages, so maybe 1% to 2% of the U.S. housing stock, if those were to all of a sudden sell, it would be a material impact on the total number of existing homes for sale and therefore in prices. Now, the reason I focus on this so much is that consumer confidence is highly tied to home prices. And if all of a sudden the value of your home goes down 10 15%, even though you're not transacting, you're going to think twice about going on vacation. You're going to think twice about buying a new car. And all of these things that uh, consumers do when they just don't feel as wealthy will become a huge problem for the economy. Now, in addition to that, we, the rate picture, I'm just not constructive on rates declining from here anytime soon. We have, we have the Treasury needing to issue just inordinate numbers of bonds, rolling bonds uh, quarter to quarter. Um, we're running at a $2 trillion deficit. I mean, how are we as a country going to be able to pay for all this debt? Now, the the cynic in me says, QE has got to come back for this to happen, but how do you have QE come back and avoid inflation? So we are heading into a period of uncertainty here around rates, which will then bubble over to the economy. And I I think that the next 12 to 24 months are going to look a whole lot worse than the last 12 months. So that's why there's a a tale of two periods there.
1: I I think you're the first cynical fixed income person I've ever met. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Probably not.
0: (laughs) And I mean, for me, you know, getting getting close to the uh, the home buying age, uh, not not ideal. So, um, but it, just in terms of for you, I mean, you're just talking about you know one of the big areas where you could see the impact being in home building. Um, where do you see like some potential areas of opportunity, some some areas where they might weather that potential downturn that you're referring to um, in that that coming year or so?
2: You know, some businesses did better through COVID. They did, um, they did uh, better through inflation. That's not the majority of businesses out there though. But I think just for, in terms of an asset class perspective, I actually think high yield bonds are probably the most interesting of publicly traded credit products. And here's why. And, and by the way, you could say the same of IG, but IG spreads are just not that wide. So I'm I'm more interested in high yield bonds than I am in IG, but here's here's why, and it's because the the high yield universe has is the highest quality it's been in many many years. It's the highest percentage of double B's that it's been in at least ten years. Um, it's it's actually less levered on a total debt to EBITDA basis than broadly syndicated loans are, and it's because broadly syndicated loans were the the asset of choice or the financing tool of choice for private equity sponsors doing new LBOs. So again, high quality, low leverage. And then in addition to that, both the high yield market and the broadly syndicated loan market are about $1.4, $1.5 But there are double the number of borrowers in, in loans as there are in bonds, which would suggest that the average high yield bond issuer is actually meaningfully larger than the average loan issuer. Large businesses tend to weather an economic downturn better than small ones. They have more diversity in their customer base, more diversity in their supplier base. And so I think that they're going to weather a downturn better. And in addition to that, bigger businesses, generally speaking, through an inflationary period, should be able to defend their margins, which means that if revenues rise because of inflation, and if they are with a one or two year lag able to maintain their EBITDA margin or their cash flow margin then the dollars of EBITDA available to these big businesses actually will grow. And if you have the benefit of time and you have, you know, four or five years, six years until your maturity on your high yield bond or your IG bond, then you actually might have the opportunity to delever by the time you get to that maturity on a, on a nominal dollars perspective. So I actually think that earning a 9% yield to maturity on high yield bonds today with probably more like a 95 to 10% uh, yield to to uh, actual recovery because you know a good high yield issuer is gonna is gonna refinance its bond a year to, or eighteen months before its maturity so you're gonna have a pull to par that's faster um, that to me is a very attractive risk adjusted return given the size of those borrowers and the leverage of those borrowers um, now in terms of opportunity set on the on the opportunistic side not the performing side I think we are embarking on a a great set of circumstances for distressed debt investing. So if we think about the highest quality businesses in the last five years, they were the ones that had the most stable cash flows. They were the most leverageable asset classes. Industrial real estate, multifamily real estate, all traded at very low cap rates. Um, On the LBO side, what businesses were levered the most? They were the ones that had a very diverse customer base um, and a very stable return or growing profile. So what were those Mm -hmm. industries? Software was one. Healthcare services was another. Healthcare services companies are essential, but they were impacted by COVID the most. But they were also very highly levered because they're so essential. Software, very highly levered because of growth and because of diversity in its customer base. Those two sectors are still pretty high quality, but they are not levered appropriately given the cost of borrowing at this time. They were more levered than the average business was in 2018 or 19 when they were LBOed. And today at with you know base rates at over 5%, they're just going to have a very tough time cash flowing because the debt burden is too high. So typical example of good company, bad balance sheet. Which is the recipe for an for a very attractive distressed investment opportunity that I think will unfold over the next you know couple of years.
0: And then, so touching on something you had mentioned earlier in terms of the index composition, or I, I guess the the ratings composition, you know, in the corporate space, double is making up just about half, whereas in loans, you're seeing um, a little bit more of a deterioration in terms of the double B composition. There, can you just talk to? Uh, in your in your opinion what what's driving that divergence between those two asset classes
2: double b rated loans you know 10 12 years ago were about 30% of that index or of, of that market today they're about 16% so so cut in half now the reason for that is because about 70% maybe a little bit more than 70% of the loan market was issued in connection with an lbo Private equity sponsors prefer, generally, to lever up as much as possible. That means push leverage to a point where it's a single B, or in the case of Moody's, a B3. And it's really because of the private equity usage of the the broadly syndicated loan product that there's been that deterioration. And why did private equity sponsors prefer loans versus bonds? It's because bonds have call protection, and they never let that go, whereas loans have pretty meaningless call protection. I mean they have a, they have a soft call for 6 months typically and then beyond that they could be repriced at any point in time. Um so that's that's the main reason why um but by the way if you look at the B3 or you know single B rated loans in the market today based on analysis that I believe Moody's did 60% of the B3s in the market will have less than one times fixed charge coverage by the end of 2024. Um, that means they just don't cash flow enough to just pay their interest. Um, And given the size that the market is now, um, that's going to be pretty painful for that particular cohort of the broadly syndicated loan market, which by the way, will result in volatility in prices of the broadly syndicated loan market, which by the way, will create yet another reason for the banks to be hesitant to use their balance sheet to syndicate loans. And therefore private credit we'll have to fill that gap. So this kind of, you know, comes all the way full circle back to private credit, which needs to grow to fill the void that both investment banks are creating and, you know, which we haven't talked about yet, but the commercial banks and regional banks are creating uh, with them stepping away from the markets.
1: So certainly a lot to touch on there. And maybe want to go a little bit more technical here. You know, because you alluded to a couple of these points, and I think they're worth sort of pulling on. So I think one of the things that you had mentioned in terms of the pull-to-par mechanic, in terms of you get these high-yield bonds that are trading, right now let's just say 86, 87 cents on the dollar, somewhere in that neighborhood. And, you know, one of the things that I've highlighted on my side is you get the shortage, average maturity, just given the dearth of new issuance, and we're talking straight corporates here. Over the last few years, your average maturity is inside of five years, which we've never seen. Uh, And so it's kind of amazing in that standpoint. But I guess maybe when you're thinking about sort of the the technicals of the marketplace, firstly, you know, how important do you think that pull-to-par mechanic is? Or do you think it's mostly just sort of a a floor for you in terms of of your return expectation? And do you think about how you sort of, I I guess you almost don't have to manage for duration, but do you think about duration in an environment uh, like this, given what your expectations for the Fed are?
2: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I didn't realize it was like a seven-part question, but it's, uh, but it's all good. I'll, I'll do it one at a time. <laughs> uh, but it, so in terms of duration, uh, first and foremost, uh, for the better part of the last few years, last couple of years with this rate increase um, uh, that, that we've seen, duration has not been your friend. Um, and at some point, it will be your friend. Because at some point, the conventional wisdom will be that the Fed is done raising rates and, and the rates are going to be flat to, to declining. And even when, when the market actually feels that we are now flatlining on rates, I think at that point, the concept of pull to par will become even more, uh, it'll resonate even more because that five-year average maturity will become four or three and a half by the time that that this becomes what is the, the, the market, uh, uh, you know, the market expectation. And at that point, if you if you see, lo- if you see bonds at 86 or 87, they're screaming buy, because you will now be at a 12% or, or something like that, you know, total return. And, and given that opportunity uh, or the, or the um, attractiveness of the quality of these businesses, I think that's going to be a, a screaming buy. And I think that the market will end, will actually get there faster on switching as to whether duration is your friend or your foe. Sooner than even a year or a year and a half from now, because the market just typically anticipates these shifts a little bit faster. Um, so we're not—I don't—we are managing to duration in our multi-asset credit funds um, because we do have benchmarks that that are somewhat sensitive to duration. We don't want to um, we don't want to inadvertently take a view on duration that might be meaningfully wrong. Um, but I do think that if I only had a dollar to invest. Over the next six months, I think buying duration is actually going to be a, a good thing because it's going to be buying quality, but also discount, convexity. So that's, um, but but I wouldn't say that Oak Tree spends a lot of time thinking about duration or thinking about the rate curve. We're really thinking about quality of the underlying borrowers and the the spread and the absolute return that we're earning relative to that quality. And I think that that's, that's, that's going to be... Uh, um, how we put together the portfolio, our portfolios. Um, and I think duration um, will probably extend as we do that or as we, as we continue to invest because the longest duration assets in the market are actually the highest quality. The double Bs actually extended uh, their duration out a lot at the end of 2020 and early 21, whereas the triple C's were the ones that couldn't. So we actually, to the extent you see maturities in the next 12 to 18 months, they're really only triple Cs. Um, And I would be very careful of those because I don't think a lot of them can refinance under the current market rate environment um, and still cash flow.
1: So, you know, again, something that you sort of touched on and maybe I want to build on a little bit. So uh, on the rate side, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of surprises me, at least so far, is that there hasn't been more noise about the inability to service debt given the the rise in sort of the floating rate component, whether it's the old LIBOR or the new SOFR or whatever we're having to reference in there. Uh, I guess when you're looking at that story, and, and you maybe alluded to the answer here when you talked about sort of that transition into distress going forward, but how do you see that sort of story playing out? Is it something that maybe people have gotten overly concerned out, or it's, we just haven't gotten to that peak yet uh, for that really to flow through the economy?
2: Yeah, investors are are pretty backward-looking and short-sighted with respect to um, the quality of earnings of the markets or, or of the economy. And I don't think we've had enough time since you know 4 or 5% SOFR or base rates have been hit to truly judge how a year or two with high rates will impact a company's bottom line. We don't know uh, how it'll impact their willingness to invest in their own future in their property, plant and equipment and their own people. We don't know um, their ability to, to, to maintain their margins if there is you know, pressure in the economy broadly. So I, I think that um, this year, the first half of this year sort of lulled people to sleep. It, it, things looked better than, than expected. So I, I do think that as you, as you look forward though, some businesses, some highly levered companies, will have a challenge in making it through. Um, so, I would expect to see uh, to see bigger problems on the horizon because of rates. Um, and um, I, th- I think I think investors should be patient and, and be up in quality.
1: So, I've got sort of more of maybe a theoretical question for you. And, and and I guess you know as I think about the markets and I think in particular about the growth in private credit or just the evolution of high yield over the last you know two plus decades where we've gone from a almost an exclusively corporate market to a corporates and loan market to now a triumvirate of corporate loans and private credit. Do you think this this sort of transition, whether it's from you know the the more liquid transparent markets quote unquote of high yield corporates into loans and then into private? in sort of the the pulling of capital away from traditional corporates, do you think that it has any sort of permanent impact in terms of the liquidity premium that's expected from corporates? Because it strikes me that, you know, a lot of your traditional high-yield investors are still traditional high-yield investors, and yet the incremental dollar in terms of borrowing in the marketplace is not going into that marketplace, so you're you're left with sort of this pool of capital that doesn't have the same sort of uh, flexibility Uh, maybe to move away into some of these other markets. Do you think that impacts uh, how liquidity gets priced? I think it could. Um, What
2: I've noticed, a few things, observations. First of all, institutional investors are more and more, when they're doing searches, interested in private credit. And they view it as kind of a fixed income substitute. It's, It's not... Um, they will they will invest in high yield bonds if they need liquidity, but they don't view private credit as inferior to high yield bonds, uh, generally speaking. And and so, um, th- as they a- as they move over or they as they allocate a growing num- amount of dollars to private credit, it's not like there's a lot of uh, asset formation in high yield bonds that has no place to be invested. The market is, I would say, fairly balanced. Um, Like this year, for example, in high yield bonds, there really haven't been significant outflows despite rates rising. Um, And as a result of that, because of coupons, calls, and tenders kind of accumulating cash in these portfolios, and without there being outflows, and without there being material number of new issues, high yield bond market for most of of the last several months, other than maybe the last three weeks, was just grinding tighter and tighter on spreads. So um, that kind of tells you that a state of equilibrium in fund formation for high yield bonds will result or could result in some tightening of that of that risk premium, possibly. But I don't think it's so pronounced because I don't think that... Um, I think, that, I think that private credit has grown so much that more of the incremental allocation dollar is going to private credit versus high-yield bonds. And in fact, even within public credit, it seems to me that the incremental allocation is going more towards multi-asset credit than it is to specifically high-yield bonds or specifically senior loans. And so that multi-asset credit becomes, you know, it's the manager's judgment to, you flow into or away from certain types of uh, floating or fixed or high duration, low duration asset classes uh, as well. And so it's not like there's this at least palpable mismatch between demand for fixed rate high yield bonds and supply being low of fixed rate high yield bonds.
0: And then turning to an asset class that we haven't really touched on. So CLOs um, right now, obviously, have, have really moved into focus. And I wanted to get your thoughts just in terms of you know, across the structure, where are you seeing some particular strengths, whether that's in the equity tranche or maybe a, a little bit more in the safety side of AAA uh, for CLOs?
2: I think CLOs um, across the board are, are, depending on depending on your sensitivity to ratings, can offer attractive returns, even even in today's market. Now, historically, let's talk about the bottom of the capital structure first. Historically, if you looked at periods of volatility in the underlying loan asset class, that was actually a good thing for CLO equity. If you looked at CLO equity returns by vintage, and you said, let's only look at the periods of time where the market was dicey. The, the senior loan index was trading at 95 or lower. So it was not a par market. Um, it had a lot of volatility up and down. If you And then if you looked at CLO equities, what you would find is, fewer CLOs got issued. And the cost of liabilities on the CLOs that did get issued was really high. But the dollar price for the assets that they acquired was actually pretty low. It was sort of 92 to 95. That combination, high cost of liabilities, low or or discounted purchase price of of, uh, senior loans, resulted in the most attractive vintages of CLO equities. And it was because you get 12 times leverage on the buy and there's no replicating the value that that creates when the market's choppy. So what that means is if you're an investment manager that can that can pick good credits that will pay through a cycle, you should really lean in when the markets are choppy. Um, now, in AAAs, um, they got as wide as, you know, 220 um, uh, in, in 2022, uh, there's, they've since tightened, you know, in from there. But you know, earning so plus let's say 140, 150 in in triple A's with where so is now, I mean, you're earning six percent in in triple A rated securities that will that will never have an impairment, even with a, 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 a even with a recession if one were to occur first of all i don't think that there will, will have a deep recession but even if one were to occur to see the value erosion all the way into triple a's is highly highly unlikely and so earning uh six uh, percent especially if you're a rating sensitive investor i think that's nirvana it's a pretty pretty awesome opportunity
0: and then uh i guess touching on that last point you're making about uh the general distress uh, for, for you, how do you see defaults playing in terms of the overall picture? Like for that equity tranche, are they, are they relatively exposed or is the structure just really well insulated against um, those types of events?
2: If you take a market approach and you just say, I'm going to buy i I'm going to buy the market. I think CLO equity is exposed. I, I because there are tail, there are, t- there's tail risk, in broadly syndicated loans, and the equity is the first to bear that tail risk. And so I do think that um, as what I expect to occur in the economy to unfold over the next you know, 12 months, 24 months, I think you will see some challenges in CLO equities that will result in them stopping to pay their, their dividend, uh, their net interest margin earned on, on the CLO equities. So I, th- I do think that there will be some challenges for, for some CLO equities of older vintages when, or if a manager took a very top-down approach and just kind of bought whatever in the market. It, um, um, now, CLO bond tranches, rated tranches, have, have the benefit of the self-help mechanism where as the CLO's quality declines in the form of ratings, in the form of defaults, and as cash flows get diverted away from the CLO equity tranche the structure starts to delever so that's why you've actually had very low losses on any rated tranche over the last 15 20 years of CLO issuance it's because the structure is actually very robust it's it's the one of very few structures where the liabilities exceed the stated final maturity on your assets it's usually the other way around in some of these in some of these financing structures So it has the benefit of duration of matched duration. Um, It has the benefit of a of a structure that deleverages itself when the quality deteriorates. So, I do think you could see dislocation in double B's and maybe triple B's as the market goes through some volatility. But but I also think that those will be huge buying opportunities. If you look at any period of time over the last ten years where you've seen Double B-rated CLO tranches trade to a 1,200 spread or more. Let's say even a thousand spread or more. It's it didn't stay there too long. It didn't stay there for years. It stayed there for like three months, five months. Even if there was sort of a recessionary uh, uh, a challenge in the market or a or a sector specific issue in the market, um, they th- those those became huge total return opportunities uh, if bought right. So I, I do think that it's a market to watch. Um, I think for those uh, investors that are willing to play in equity and invest with a manager that they trust to to invest through a cycle, I think the CLO equities for, on a new issue basis can be interesting too.
0: And then stepping back to, I guess, the, the higher level picture here, I guess, across equity and credit for you, I, I, and I was reading through um, Howard Marks's recent um, note that he published out, uh, and, you know, he talked about equity versus credit and, in your opinion, you know, looking at the market as a whole, what, what are you seeing as like the critical takeaway for an investor right now, uh, across the market as a whole?
2: Um, I think it's credit's day in the sunshine. Um, I wouldn't have said that in 2017 or 18, um, um, or even 19. Um, it was really back then, um, it was pretty easy for an equity owner to get access to credit and generate an attractive return on equity, um, and that's no longer the case. And it's not gonna be the case for a while. Um, we have just too many technical and fundamental reasons why rates will stay higher for longer, and I don't see how equity works in that in that current context. Um, and I think investors should take a view that look. I mean, over the last forty years, we've seen two thousand basis points of compression in rates. Um, we've seen a little bit of a bump up in rates relative to the a forty year standard. It's this this rate increase period is not is not that you know concerning if you take a long enough view. Um, we just may be in a, a period here where base rates are going to be permanently higher. Um, we had base rates at near zero, or we had them at zero for a while, and um, near zero for SOFR for a very long while. Um, we don't need to have 5% SOFR for there to be stress or problems in the market or problems for equity. Even 3% SOFR, 4% SOFR is going to be impactful and will lean to on favoring credit over equity for, I think, a, 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 a pretty considerable amount of time.
1: So I guess maybe to close up with a couple of questions, one sort of piggybacking on that, I guess, you know, and and I don't necessarily disagree with you at all in terms of the rates scenario and how that plays out. But one of the things that strikes me is that the market seems, I don't want to say slow to come to grips with that reality, uh, but (laughs) that's sort of what it does seem like. And I guess for me, the parallel is almost like post-financial crisis It took the Fed two, three years to really convince the market like, hey, listen, we've got your back. We're going to underpin the risk rate, right? If the market wobbled, the Fed kind of was immediately out there. And now we're almost in the sort of the flip side, uh, the mirror side of that mechanic where maybe the the market's sort of slow to glom on because they've become so acclimatized to the Fed being there to rescue them. I guess, number one, uh, you know, how do you, or why do you think this sort of the market's been hesitant to sort of embrace uh, a higher rate environment, number one? And then number two, sort of being a little bit of a devil's advocate, you know, when I think about a lot of these asset classes that really benefit from the floating rate mechanism that they have, uh, you know, both whether we're talking private credit or leveraged loans or even general investment grade floating notes, as you were alluding to, right? All very favorable in this backdrop, but they also tend to be very pro-cyclical with when rates go down, you know, money will find a different sort of more stable duration related return. So I guess one, you know, again, you know, why do you think sort of the market's been so hesitant to embrace this higher for longer? And then two, when we do transition back, whether it's 12 months, 12 years, whatever it happens to be, uh, into sort of a, a rate declining environment, how do you think some of these asset classes fare? Um, I, I like asking question. multi-part questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, the good
2: question. Um, so why is the market um, sort of shrugging off higher for longer? Um I think again, it's it, it's a few things. One is I think the market generally, and equity investors in particular, um are just by nature optimistic. You wouldn't invest money if you weren't optimistic. If you were pessimistic, you'd probably just sit on cash or gold or you know, or um, so I think that's, uh, you know, when we, when we start with the question is why do investors think X, Y, or Z, we have to just assume that they're optimistic and they're always looking for any sort of headline that would, that would support their optimistic view. Um, you know, when, when inflation was, um, uh, you know, coming down under control, they were, they were saying, oh, that's great. That means the rate increases are going to, are going to stop. And some of them went even so far to say, The rates will decline which is not true i mean inflation coming under control doesn't mean rates decline it just means they don't go up as much anymore but they didn't those same investors weren't thinking well is that a problem if if gdp slows down is is gdp slowing down a bad thing or not as what how do we think about economic growth and and how that ties to inflation there the the market wants market participants want to extract the positives more frequently than they want to think about the negatives. So I think that's a big part of, of them shrugging it off. And then also just being backward looking, saying, well, look, I mean, performance is not that bad. And they look at averages. They say, well, the average you know, r- revenue growth number or the average EBITDA went up or the average, lo- look at the S&P, the average is up. Well, but then when you kind of double click a couple layers in, you say, oh, well, the top seven uh, stocks are actually driving that average and the rest of the equities are don't look so hot. Well, you know, that they, the averages tell a story that I think is dangerous to accept. Um, but I think if you look at the tails, the especially the weaker tail, those tails are getting weaker and weaker every quarter. Their performance is deteriorating every quarter and and I think that, because I view the markets in a state of fragile equilibrium with with very low liquidity, lower than it's been in a very long time, a little bit of selling pressure is going to drive a huge price change, whether it's home prices or security prices. Either way, a small amount of selling pressure is going to is going to move the needle. Now, how do these how do these investments do in the future if if rates decline? Um, I think you know it's hard to predict, but I but that question um it leads me to kind of go back to another uh, answer i had earlier which is at some point duration will be your friend because if you could buy duration high quality companies that through if given enough time will actually benefit on a nominal dollars of ebitda or cash flow basis because of inflation over a several year period um And the conventional wisdom will be that rates need to decline because maybe there's a recession and rates will have to decline as a result. Or maybe the Fed says, the Treasury can't afford this anymore. We've got to do QE. There, There are upside rate pictures to present, but I think something has to break first. Something material has to break first. And at some point, I think there will be a buying opportunity in duration, high quality duration. Um, It's just not here at the the moment because I do think, again, something does need to break that's material.
1: Excellent. So, well, certainly with where yields are at, it's probably as interesting a time to be a credit investor as it has been uh, certainly in quite some time. Uh, The upshot is the oak tree canopy covers much of that landscape. So we do want to once again thank Armin Panosian for joining us this month. And, of course, once again, Armin, congratulations to you on the pending co-CEO seat. It really has been a pleasure until next time. This has been credit crunch.